You're listening to an Irish exclusive on Today FM, The Beatles Legacy, Red and Blue. Hello, I'm Kevin Howlett. Welcome to our special programme exploring the Beatles' musical legacy. Featuring tracks from the new 50th anniversary editions of the group's Red and Blue albums, plus the unexpected bonus of a new single by the Beatles, Now and Then. We'll hear from the Beatles, plus comments from producers George Martin, Mark Ronson and Rick Rubin, and musicians such as Brian Wilson, Bob Seger, Dave Grohl and Tom Petty. They were just out in front. There was the Beatles, and then there was everyone else, and everyone else could be great, but the Beatles were leading the way, and that's just irrefutably true. I mean, if you just look back and follow the history of the music, that's clearly what was going on, and it was obvious at the time. Included on the new edition of the Beatles Blue Album, Magical Mystery Tour. New expanded versions of the Red and Blue compilations accompany the exciting arrival of a final Beatles single, Now and Then. In the months leading up to its release, there was some confusion about how much artificial intelligence has played a part in the completion of Now and Then. The single's co-producer, Giles Martin, is keen to set the record straight. I was involved in it. I'm neither artificial or intelligent, so uh, so, so there you are. I think that I think that the source separation material worker, which is really useful, the AI phrase, especially when it comes to music, where there is music being generated by computers, this really wasn't generated by any computer at all. The machine-assisted learning software that works so well for now and then has also been used to demix all the songs on the new version of the Red album. When the Beatles made their debut album. The group spent a day in EMI Studios in Abbey Road to record 10 songs needed to complete the LP. The aim of the Beatles and their producer George Martin on that busy day in February 1963 was simply to capture the excitement of the group playing live. Oh, you got me good. 
for the first album was recorded in a one long 12-hour session, which the, the last song to be done was a song called Twist and Shout, which nearly killed me. It was the last song after 12 hours of singing and being in a recording studio. And I was always bitterly ashamed of it because I sang it better than that, you know. And it, but now it doesn't bother me. You can hear that I'm just some frantic guy, you know, doing his best. But it was the nearest thing to trying to capture us live, you know. The nearest thing to as we might have sounded in Hamburg or Liverpool to the audience. I mean, it's still you don't get that live atmosphere of the crowd stomping on the beat with you and all that. But it's about the nearest it to get to knowing what we sounded like before we became the clever Beatles. The gathering momentum of the Beatles' success proved unstoppable, and their schedule of concerts, radio and TV appearances was unrelenting. It always seemed to me like we'd drive from Liverpool, drive to London, run into the BBC Playhouse, set up our stuff, do a quick run-through, then go on the radio live, grab a cup of tea, jump back in the van, drive to Newcastle, do a gig, and then drive back to Liverpool. Like, all in the same day. You know, if you look at our itinerary, some of those years where we we did uh, maybe a tour of England, a tour of Europe, a tour of America, two albums and about four EPs and three singles, and, you know, maybe made a movie all in the same year, you think, how did we do that? Experiencing the Beatles story as it unfolded during the 1960s was extraordinary. Their bold experimentation with songwriting, performance and recording continually prompted the question, what will they do next? After just a little over seven years of recording, the Beatles stopped working together and embarked on solo careers in 1970. On his Plastic Ono Band album released at the end of that year, John sang, I don't believe in Beatles and the dream is over. But the Red and Blue albums introduced a new generation to the group in 1973. Journalist and author of Dreaming the Beatles, Rob Sheffield, was seven years old when the two double LP compilations arrived. There was a glorious rush of Beatles stuff on the radio in 1973 in the US with George having a number one hit with Give Me Love, and then it gets bumped by a song called My Love by Paul McCartney. The Beatles were very busy, very confident solo artists who were somewhat bewildered to find themselves competing with the Beatles, and it seems really ambivalent about it. It seems the Red and Blue albums took them by surprise and took a lot of the adult world by surprise, mostly because they were so appealing to kids who'd missed out on the 60s. And if you just did not grow up in the 60s and you did not follow the story album by album, the Red and Blue albums presented it all as, here, this is the whole story. You're welcome inside it.
The Red and Blue albums, they were prophetic that way. And they presented the Beatles as a right now thing, a contemporary thing, a thing that kids were welcome into. So for my parents, they would say to me and my sisters, you know the Beatles are over, right? You know they broke up. It seemed ridiculous to hear people talk about the Beatles as something that happened. Definitely strange to hear people use the word nostalgia because the Red and Blue albums were about the present and the future. And they presented the Beatles as this astounding story that was still going on, which in so many ways is, is exactly right. And in 1973, when a lot of people, including the four Beatles, saw this as a story that was over and they wanted to move on with their separate lives, their separate solo careers, the Red and Blue albums were basically the audience saying, nope, we still love the Beatles, and there's really no still about it. This was the Beatles. There was nothing about it that evoked the past or nostalgia. It was a celebration of the future in this music. Dave Grohl is one of the many musicians to fall under the spell of the Beatles at an early age. The first Beatles albums that we bought as a family, the Red and the Blue sort of greatest hits records, it was those two albums that I really, really fell in love with music. I think it was the first time I'd ever been really, really excited about a band or music because... Even at that age, I could understand that there was a lot more depth to them than maybe something you'd hear on the radio or music that you'd hear on television. So I would sit and play along to those two albums with my songbook, and that's basically how I learned how to play guitar. That's like the foundation of my understanding of composition or arrangement or any kind of songwriting. It's all rooted in that book and those two albums because that's how I started to play. And without that, I mean, who knows what the hell. Had I sat down with a Rush record or <laughs> or an Edgar Winter album, both of which I liked, but had I sat down with any other albums to learn to play guitar, I don't think I'd be doing what I do. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Yesterday came suddenly Why she had to go I don't know she wouldn't say I said something wrong Now I long for yesterday Yesterday Love was such an easy game to play I need a place to hide away Oh, I believe in yesterday Why she had to go I don't know, she wouldn't say I said something Yesterday, 
Love was such an easy game to play Now I need a place to hide away Oh, I believe in yesterday Yesterday, from the Beatles' Red Album, now reissued and remixed for a special 50th anniversary edition. Every Beatles album proves that John and Paul could sing anything from a tender ballad to a raucous rocker. As Tom Petty, talking in 2009, points out, few groups are blessed with such charismatic voices. They both had such a great lead vocal style, but so different, you know, you could tell who was who. I was noticing that's really interesting is that when they would sing unison, when the two would sing together, it sounded almost like a third guy, you know, like a, a whole different guy. It was like one hold of your hand sort of sounds like neither John nor Paul to me. And then, of course, you had George had that lovely blend on the... They did a lot of three-part stuff, and he just had a great sound, too, so it's pretty insane, isn't it? I think I'm gonna be sad I love that Tom Petty quote that you have. That's so beautiful. He says, John Paul singing together. It's a third voice. I thought of that so much during... Ticket to Ride, which is so beautiful. Everybody thinks of Ticket to Ride as John singing this story. And hearing it in these mixes, you think, wow, like John is telling this story because Paul is right there telling the story with him. And Paul is singing so much of the vocal in that song, but he's very brilliantly and very calculatingly, because he's Paul McCartney, making it so that you hear this as John's story. And of course, what every single Beatle is doing individually in Ticket to Ride. You hear that in these mixes, and it's just a revelation. That's also true in this mix of Norwegian Wood when their voices are singing. And something that's great about that song is Paul is really making sure that you hear it as John telling the story. He's making sure not to step on John's story. And yet the story that John is telling, it does not work without Paul's vocal, does not work without Ringo's very understated thump, 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 especially in the middle eights, does not work, of course, without George's sitar. And in these mixes, you can hear what they're doing on a level that is 
really kind of miraculous that they're working so hard at making sure that you're not distracted by them. I once had a girl, or should I say, she once had me. Show me her room, isn't it good? Norwegian wood. She asked me to stay and she told me to sit anywhere. So I looked around and I noticed there wasn't a chair. I sat on a rug, biding my time, drinking her wine. Until two, and then she said, It's time for bed. She told me she worked in the morning and started to laugh. Told her I didn't and crawled out to sleep in the bath And when I awoke, I was alone Whispered the flow So I lit the fire, isn't it good? Norwegian wood George, playing a sitar on Norwegian wood was just one of the reasons Rubber Soul was so influential when it was released in December 1965, as Brian Wilson recalls. Oh my gosh, I, I couldn't believe it. I was so impressed with that album and that sound, that sitar. It blew my mind. I'm going, Marilyn, Arnie, what, what is this? Play it again. Play that song again, you know? When you hear what they're up to musically, it's like a... Uh, a little kick in the butt, you know, makes you want to do something good. I was so blown away that I went to the piano and wrote God Only Knows. I think they just really had a lot to do with the Renaissance in the 60s, you know. During the years since he'd produced the group's debut single, Love Me Do, in 1962, George Martin had witnessed a startling progression in the Beatles' music. They were getting more and more interested in unusual sounds and they were trying out new instruments and always coming to me saying, what ideas have you got for this, you know? They showed no signs of flagging as far as their musical creativity was concerned. On the contrary, they were becoming more and more productive and the work they were giving me was much more interesting. They were finding new frontiers all the time and their success gave them confidence to do things which they wouldn't dare do before. Let me take you Spain filming a howl on the wall. 
I was going through a big scene about songwriting again, you know, I seem to go through it now and then. It, and uh, it took me a long time to write it. I was writing old bits and bits of it. I just wanted the lyrics to be like conversation. It didn't work, you know. That one verse was sort of ludicrous. Really. I just wanted it to be like, you know, like we're talking that I just happened to be singing it. You know, like that. And it was very quiet, and, but it was written in this sort of big Spanish house part of it and then finished on the beach, you know. It was really romantic and that. Strawberry Fields Forever and the equally groundbreaking song on the other side of the single, Penny Lane, showed the far-reaching extent of the Beatles' ambitions in the studio. When the group entered their experimental phase of running tapes at different speeds and backwards, producer George Martin was a keen ally in the overthrow of the studio rulebook. Based on a firm foundation of strong songs performed with a unique chemistry, the imaginative sounds and complex arrangements of the records ensure the Beatles' musical legacy is built to last. Two of today's leading producers, Mark Ronson and Rick Rubin, are impressed by this achievement. Yeah, well, because you have the best band of all time with the best producer of all time, it's kind of hard to say if either one would have had either of those titles without the other, but that's what happened and that's how it ends up. It's different than just the songs being great. While the songs were great, better than anyone else's, to this day, still, they understood how to present them in a way that was an interesting, compelling statement. If we separate it into the the content would be the script for the movie, and that would be the song, and then the movie would be the recorded version. From the same script, you could make a lot of different movies. You know, they could look completely different. And from the you can record the same song. If you listen to all the people who covered Beatles songs, they could be done many, many, many different ways. So they had both the craft of being able to create these perfect versions in their record-making process. And there are some people who are really good at making records, but they might not have the great content. And then there are people who have really great content who might not make the best records. And they had, again, this magic total picture of all of it. As you drift past the flowers that grow so incredibly high, you pay for taxis that fear on the shore, waiting to take you away. Climb in the back with your head in the clouds and you're gone. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds from Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, an album that was so experimental 
and successful that everyone working in the music business in 1967, or aspiring to do so, was bowled over, including producer T-Bone Burnett and Tom Petty. Their records are almost irreducible because it's not just the great song, it's also the great tone of voice, the great guitar part, the great guitar sound, the great drum sound, the beat, the type of beat Ringo played. They didn't just write songs, they wrote records, you know, that was a, a first, I think. Nobody had done that before. They did write records because they had such an idea of what they were doing and, and how it sounded, and it seemed like to me that the songs were written to be records, you know, and very much learned how to master the studio. I don't think you'd ever had a rock and roll act that got interested in the studio that way. You know, they really wanted to know what made what happen and and really took the technical limitations of the time. You know, they pushed that as far as they could. It was a good piece of work between Paul and I to find the product, you know. Because I had the, I ran the news to Delaware all that bit, you know. And uh, it turned him on, you know, because now and then we'd really turn each other on with a bit of a song. And he just said, yeah, bang, bang. And then he sang that bit and we joined it. And it just sort of happened beautifully and we arranged it and rehearsed it, which we don't often do, you know, the afternoon before. So we all knew what we were playing, we just all got into it. And it was a real groove, you know, the whole, whole scene on that. He sang that bit, you know, it was a completely different song, another song. But it came to the point where I needed a middle eight for it, but, you know, that would have been forcing it. All the rest had been come out smooth, like, flowing, no trouble. And to write a middle eight would have been to write a middle eight. But instead, there was one already there that he had, you know, just a matter of arranging it. Found my coat and grabbed my hat Made the bus in seconds flat Found my way upstairs and had a smoke Somebody spoke and I went into a dream I'd been listening to a lot of avant-garde music like Stockhausen and John Cage. I had a few sort of funky mates around who'd, who'd bung me little tapes and say, hey, listen to this. Quite radical stuff, you know. So uh, I was very influenced by all of that. So I said to John, OK, look, after we've done that bit, we should have a big sort of orchestral section. And it really goes on, because it was a feeling like a big song, feeling like it could take a big, broad canvas. 
And when we get the orchestra that we're going to do for some big blanket chords, we'll tell them to start with their lowest note and reach their highest note over the period of those bars. But they can go in any order they want. They just must start with their lowest note and end with their highest note on their instrument. And when the session finally came, I somehow ended up conducting them all in a big funny apron. It was quite a zany evening. I'm Kevin Howlett with our special programme, The Beatles Legacy, Red and Blue. In the 60s, it was clear that you should always expect the unexpected from The Beatles. In 1968, they began work on a new album to follow Sgt Pepper. In a move typical of The Beatles, with the White Album, the group took a new direction. During the sessions for the double LP, they recorded a song that became their best-selling single in the USA and is still sung in sports stadiums everywhere. Bob Seger was stunned when he first heard it. I was in Chicago in a parking lot when I heard Hey Jude. You know, it's like, you know, quit hitting me over the head with how great you are. I'm, I'm getting exhausted. You know, when I heard Hey Jude, it was like, you can't keep getting this much better. <laughs> and we were always told, oh, you got to give like uh, 10, 15 seconds for the radio guy to talk over the beginning, you know. But the effect of starting immediately with a voice just rips you right into the song. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her into your heart. Then you can start to make it better. Playing it to John and Yoko, who were up in my music room. I said, I've got this new song, you know. And I was going through it, and I kept sort of giving little uh, comments as I was going, you know, sort of do that, and sort of might put that in there, and maybe do this. And when I got to the bit, the movement you need is on your shoulder, I sort of looked over my shoulder, so I said, I'll fix that, I'll fix that, don't worry. And I was going to carry on, he said, What? I said, and I stopped, well, wait a minute. I said, you know, the movement you need is on your shoulder. I said, it sounds like a parrot or something, you know. I said, a bit daft. He said, no, no, no. He said, don't touch that. It's just the best line in it. And that was see, one of the great things about John. I definitely would have ditched that line because it just didn't seem to make sense to me. But his sense of the ridiculous and the surreal would be like, no, no, no. I know what it means, he said. Okay. So I left it in, you know. And don't you know that it's so 
flipped over the Hey Jude single, there was a blast of distorted guitars heralding John's song, Revolution. John liked the uncompromising racket of the record in mono. In a radio interview in 1974, however, he expressed his disappointment with the way Revolution had turned out in stereo on the Blue Album. There's a difference between stereo and mono, obviously, and if you mix something in mono and then try and... It just... You, you lose the guts of it, you know, and a lot of them lost the... The, the fast version of Revolution was destroyed, you know. I mean, it was a heavy record, and then they made it into a piece of ice cream. <laughs> Remixed in 2023 for the new edition of the Blue Album, Revolution now explodes out of the speakers. Although not as direct as Revolution, there was another song from around this time that reflected current events. Written as an expression of support for the struggle for civil rights and racial equality in the USA, Blackbird has been added to the tracklist for the new version of the Blue Album. Rob Sheffield. Blackbird was always a song that people loved when they made it all the way through the White Album, but it was a deep cut at the time that the Blue Album came out. It wasn't the kind of song that would have been at all unnatural to include on it, but it's just become a standard. Part of it is just there's so much elemental Paul in it. We hear so much Paul empathy. We hear so much musicality. And of course, you know, now people know the backstory of why he was writing it, which he did talk about at the time, but people overlooked that part of it. It's a song that people just hear themselves in. It's really beautiful to see the afterlife of Blackbird. That song just takes on a life of its own. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see All your life You are only waiting for this moment to be free Blackbird fly Blackbird fly Into the line of a dark black night
Blackbird, now a bonus track on the Blue Album. When the last LP the Beatles recorded together, Abbey Road, first arrived in shops in 1969, the music scene was fragmented. Singles were for frothy pop songs. The album charts were dominated by heavy or underground acts such as Led Zeppelin, Cream and the Jimi Hendrix Experience. As journalist and author David Hepworth recalls, Beatles LPs like The White Album and Abbey Road skip in a heartbeat through a kaleidoscope of musical styles. I always applied completely different rules to the Beatles. They were the Beatles, you know. And there is no other group, either before or since, that has a fraction of the range of the Beatles. <laughs> Just there, there simply don't bother going looking for one because there isn't one. Uh, and so you're used to the fact that a Beatles record would have all kinds of things in it. It would have extremes of varying kinds. You know, it would have the kind of abrasive, you know, I want you, she's so heavy. And then the kind of octopus's garden, the Maxwell silver hammer. And frankly, I liked them all equally. You know, I'd grown up with the Beatles. That's what the Beatles always did. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. same period we had meetings and meetings and with all this you know banks bankers and lawyers and all sorts of things and contracts and shares and it was really awful because it's not the sort of thing we enjoy and one day I didn't come into the office I just sort of it was like sagging off school and I went to a friend's house in the country and it was just sunny and it was all just the release of the tension that had been building up on me and it was this really nice sunny day and I picked up the guitar which was the first time I'd played the guitar for a couple of weeks because I'd been so busy and the first thing that came out was that song it just came and I finished it later when I was on holiday in Sardinia Here Comes the Sun has turned out to be one of the Beatles most popular songs it's flourished in the new world of streaming and you know, make your own playlist so that everybody putting together their summer playlist, which everybody does nowadays, it's the opening song. Here Comes the Sun. Wasn't even a single at the time or anything like that. It's just a perfect beginning. And it also connects with that idea that, that it's always summer in Abbey Road. And it still is. It will be summer forever in Abbey Road. Even when everybody who had anything to do with it is gone, that will still be the sound of summer. That's a wonderful legacy. 
You're listening to The Beatles' Legacy, Red and Blue, with me, Kevin Howlett. Here Comes the Sun has been streamed over a billion times. In 1969, when that way of hearing music wasn't even dreamt up in science fiction, it opened side two of the LP, Abbey Road. The first track on side one was Come Together. It's one of my favourite Beatles tracks, I'd say that. Really, the kind of music I like. You know, it's funky, it's bluesy, and I'm singing it pretty well. And I like the sound of the record. Together is probably the funkiest song they ever did, and, and a great melody and lyrics that just make the rhythm of the song extraordinary. Without, there, there's tremendous images there. He bagged production, he got walrus gumbo. I mean, <laughs> oh no, sideboard, he won spinal cracker. Spinal cracker, I mean, just, it just, but it goes with the rhythm of the song so well. It's just so out there yet creative and just the creativity in writing those lyrics as strange and and obscurely likable as they are is uh, just another facet of their genius Come Together is a rock performance masterclass from each member of the Beatles at its foundation is Paul's swampy groove on bass and Ringo's distinctive drumming producer Mark Ronson his drama and the fluidness of all those drum rolls and fills and like I think that there was such an amazing way that he played obviously because he was a left-handed player playing on right-handed kit and I think it was because of the way that the toms were set up that he kind of had that unconventional way of hitting the tom and that that classic Ringo fill and we referenced that Beatles drum sound to death like when we're in the studio setting up mics and doing that stuff
Something. The thing that strikes me about it is obviously George, but also the rest of them. It's Ringo's fantastically stately drums, which just give it that sense of gravitas. And Paul's bass. You could have given that song to 99% of groups, and it wouldn't have sounded anything like as impressive as the way it sounded. Only a matter of a few months after something atop the American chart, the group's split became headline news around the world in April 1970. By December, John was heard singing in his song, God, the dream is over. The whole world heard them and said, that's a great opinion to have. You can have that. We're not going to begrudge you that, but we don't care. We're just not interested in whether you think the dream is over or not because the dream now belonged to us. And it's funny that when the Red and Blue albums came out in the 70s, there was so much public concern over people forgetting the Beatles. It's really weird how much that dominated the way adults spoke about the Beatles. Of course, we thought of the Beatles as a vibrant part of the 70s pop that we loved, and we thought, no, they're still our favorites. And I always loved how in anthology in the 90s, when it definitely must have seemed like the end of the line, and Derek Taylor has that beautiful, beautiful phrase where he calls them the 20th century's great romance. And I loved that turn of phrase in 1995, and I love it now. But it's so funny because the 20th century was just the beginning. It's well into the 21st century now, and the Beatles are bigger and more popular now than they were then. The Beatles are more beloved than ever. The music just lives on. 53 years later, their music endures. There is the final Beatles single, Now and Then, and Giles Martin has remixed the songs on the 50th anniversary editions of the Red and Blue albums. It'll never make the record sound new. They won't sound like Drake or they won't sound like Taylor Swift. That's not the point. But it'll make the band sound the age they are when they're playing it. It makes them sound vibrant and alive and you hear them in the room. And my intent is inspire and give care and love and attention to the greatest musical legacy there's been in pop music. And, you know, with something like the Red and Blue album and, you know, with Now and Then, it makes sense to, to combine those two things because, you know, it's, we're doing it in a way where we're really, you know, trying to give newer generations a way of opening their world to the world of the Beatles for the first time. And I was in my car with my daughter, who's 16 the other day, and on her playlist on Spotify, Yesterday came on. I looked at her and went, Yesterday? And she goes, Dad, you know, it's a really good song. You know, and so there you are. It's that that's the thing. And so people can discover the Beatles for the first time. Beatles Legacy, Red and Blue, was written and produced by me, Kevin Howlett. Thanks for listening. I remember the joy, the talent, the humour, the love. If people remembered us for those things, I'd be very happy.
Still a lot of interest in those four boys. 